Good morning. It's good to see y'all. I'm glad y'all are here. Like Jeff said this morning, my name is Tim, and I'm one of the ministers here on staff at the Parkway Church. I'm glad you're here. Uh, As we just read, we're going to be in Psalm 13. Um, So if you haven't already, I recommend turning there in your Bibles. And while you do that, I want to tell you about the first time that I ever floated a river, okay? Now, if you're not from Texas, floating the river is a weird phrase that Texans use to describe this recreational activity where you jump in a Texas river, like the Comal or the Guadalupe or the Frio, you just jump in there with an inner tube around you, and you do nothing but sit there and let the river carry you away. And that is what we call fun down here in Texas. It's so fun. That's all we do. We just sit there in the river and just kind of What are you doing today? Nothing. You just kind of hop in your inner tube, sit there like a beached whale, and just let the river carry you away. And that's a good time in Texas. Well, I had never done that uh, up until right after I graduated from Texas A&M University. Hey, whoop. And I had a buddy who was getting married. I love how some people are like, whenever that happens, you're just jealous. I had a buddy who was getting married, and that's what he wanted to do. He wanted us all, all of his guy friends, he wanted us all to go down to the river and float the river. And I was like, sure, that sounds good. Well, one guy in particular was very excited and very into floating the river. You know, it's the type of guy that's really into NASCAR, you can always tell that the guys with the mullets and the, the lifted trucks, those are the people who love floating the river. And so this guy was like, I got it. I love floating the river. I can tell us where to go. I know the greatest place to go. And so that's what we're going to do. And the way you have to do this is you have to drive a truck far down the river and park it like by a bridge or some landmark so you know when to get out and then drive up the river and jump in there. And so he knew the perfect spot. He was like, I've been doing this my whole life. This is a great thing. We're like, well, how long is it going to take? He was like, well, it'll only be about three hours. We're like, three hours? Okay, that's not too bad. And he was like, yeah, you won't even need to wear sunscreen because the river's all shaded on this part of the river. And so it's all these trees. It's really beautiful. Don't even have to wear sunscreen, okay? Just remember that. So we're like, great, that sounds awesome. Three hours, it's not too bad at all. And so we park the truck, drive up to our put-in spot, as they call it, and we jump in the river, and we just start floating. And it's super fun. You know, we're just having fun as, as guys. We're just like, hey, you know, you're about to get married. This is so fun. Life is great. We're floating on a river, and somehow this is, we're really excited. But then we notice that we're all getting really sunburned. Because unlike our buddy had said, it is very hot, and there is no shade. He was completely wrong. There's absolutely no shade. And so we're starting to really feel it on the shoulders. That's where you feel it first. But we're like, hey, it's fine. How much time do we have left? How much time are we going to be going down this river? And he said, oh, it's only like an hour from here by that point. We're like, okay, that's not too bad. An hour, we can do anything for an hour, including get something on our shoulders. So we were fine. But an hour came and went, and there was no bridge We're looking for this bridge, this landmark to tell us, there's our truck, we're free, we can get out of the river, sunburn over. But we did not see that bridge. And so we're like, hey, what's going on? He's like, well, sometimes the river's flowing a little slower than usual, and that's probably what's happening today. So it's like, the worst I've ever seen it is like 30 more minutes, you know? So it'll be like 30 more minutes. We're like, okay, okay, that's cool. 30 more minutes, that's fine. 30 minutes, comes and goes, no bridge. And so the dynamic of our group's starting to change slightly. We were like, ha, 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 this is so fun. You're getting married. And now we're just silent. 
And he keeps saying things like, as we go around a corner, he's like, I think like it's around this corner. And so we're just floating. We're like, come on, baby, come on. No, still nothing. Again and again and again. You can hear this like exhale from the group every time we don't see a bridge. We come around that corner and everybody's like, just looking at him. And so he's embarrassed. And we just keep asking him. All we can do is keep asking him, how much longer? I mean, do you recognize that rock? Is that, does that mean that we're going somewhere? Like, do you know that's, is that tree familiar? That looks like a familiar tree. Do you know, is that going to take us there? And he had no idea. He just kept saying, oh, a couple more corners, I'm sure. And so it was supposed to be a three-hour trip. How many of you all th- think that it took four hours? Show of hands. Oh, y'all are very smart. How many of you think it took five hours? Six hours? Oh, what a great, that would be so great. It took us seven hours to get no sunscreen, by the way. By the end of it, we're like underneath our inner tubes, but the water's only like three inches deep. And so we're like, oh, Lord, have mercy. You know? And we, all we can do, our only hope is to ask this guy like, hey, how much longer? Do you have any clue of where you are? Are we gonna die out here? You know, it's starting to smell like cooking meat. It's just, it's, it's awful. It was a terrible experience. And so, yeah, we were miserable by the fourth hour, but it just got worse and worse and worse. And our only hope was to ask our friend, who is not my friend anymore, <laughs> how much longer? How long? But unfortunately, we were presenting our questions and asking for help from a guy who clearly had no idea what he was doing, nor did he have any power or ability to save us from our suffering. And so that's the day I learned not to listen to anyone that has a mullet. In our psalm today, David is going through a similar trial. Although his life's actually at risk, David's gonna demonstrate to us how to, in the midst of suffering, turn to the Lord who is actually able to grant us deliverance from our suffering. The psalm serves this collection of prayers from the people of God, we talked about this last week, and it's all these prayers from different circumstances and rejoicing, you know, as they're conquering their enemies, but then also to the depths in suffering as their enemies are conquering them. And so this morning, our psalm is one of those. It's a lament, it's a psalm of sorrow aimed at showing us how to pray and even worship in the midst of suffering. So we'll pray and then let's uh, get into the text. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a good and loving father. You're so gracious to us, Lord. I pray now as your word is proclaimed, you would give us ears to hear, that you would change us, you would change our hearts. We confess we need you. We cannot seek after you apart from your move. We cannot do anything apart from you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us. We need you. That's our confession this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen. The psalm begins. I have a weird title for this one because it just says Psalm 13 title. Oh, I guess not. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Okay, that first little part. Now, that's not just the title that the ESV translators added. As Zach mentioned last week, this comes from our manuscripts. This comes from the manuscripts, and so we need to treat these as inspired, like the rest of the psalm. And so I'm not just going to skip over it. I think we actually can learn something from this. So it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Now, the first question we have to ask is, who on earth is a choir master? Some translations translate this as a director of music. Maybe yours says chief musician. But what on earth is that person? What does that mean? 
Well, don't do what many of us do and think of like a, like a church choir director, okay? Don't think of that guy in that church that you grew up with that was like super, a little too smiley. He was kind of a diva. He thought the church's primary mission was to put on a good Easter and Christmas pageant. It's that guy who's always saying things like, let's make a joyful noise to the Lord, you know? Not that guy. That's not what the choir master is. No, rather, a choir master is an actual office in the nation of Israel, If you remember your Old Testament history, you'll know that Israel was divided into 12 tribes, and one of those tribes was the tribe of Levi. And the Levites were specifically in charge of facilitating Israel's worship in the temple. And so these guys were the guys that were offering the sacrifices. They cooked a lot of steaks. They they were guarding and they carried the Ark of the Covenant. Others uh, who were the descendants of Aaron, they were actually the priests. And then you had this special group, you had the musicians. I don't know what, how they chose these musicians. I'm sure they were the guys with the man buns and the, the skinny robes. But you had this selection of the Levi's who wore these musicians and they were the singers and they played crazy instruments and it was their job to lead Israel in singing these songs of worship to God. And the guy in charge of all of those musical Levites was the choir master. He probably had the coolest man bun and a cool leather jacket. But he was the choir master and the director of music and the chief musician. And so David has written this psalm, as it says, it's the psalm of David. And the psalm is being given to the choir master to be sung by the 12 tribes of Israel, particularly to teach Israel to worship the Lord in the midst of suffering. And it's gonna teach us the same this morning. This psalm is all about answering this question. How should we relate to God in the midst of suffering? How should we relate to God in the midst of suffering? And so David begins in verse one. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Okay, this is not the happy, clappy worship song that we're used to, right? David's not in a great place. He's not, you know, sitting somewhere poolside sipping on pina coladas. He's in a rough spot. And so he takes his circumstances up with God and he asks God, how long is my life gonna be this way? How long am I gonna be enduring this suffering? And he adds, will you forget me forever? Now David's not suggesting that God is forgetful. You know, God's not up like watching TV and he's like, oh no, David. You know, like I, like I left him in the oven. He's burned by now, you know, like Tim on the river. No, David's just saying that it feels like God is forgetting him. He feels forgotten. God doesn't forget, but David feels like when you ask that friend to pick you up at the airport, you know, you had an early flight, you need a friend to come pick you up at the airport, and you're sitting in the terminal, you're sitting there waiting at the little driveway, and no one shows up. And that's how David feels. David is in this moment of need, and he's like, hey, God, where you at? When are you going to come rescue me? When are you going to come help me? Please, you know, help a brother out. And then he adds forever. He asks God, will you forget me forever? And David's using forever in the same way that we use the word forever. You know, like when we say, it took me cocina forever to get me shredded cheese for my fajitas, right? He's saying that it's been a really, really long time. Is this how it's going to be for a really long time? Is it really going to be like this forever. And then look at this question. He says, how long will you hide your face from me? 
So we talked a little bit about parallelism last week. This is classic Hebrew poetry. This is classic Hebrew parallelism that Zach covered last week. When we think of poetry in English, we think about rhyming, we think about rhythm, we think about timing. See what I did there? But in Hebrew poetry, it's all about parallelism. It's all about saying the same thing in a different way. It's about presenting the same information from different perspectives. It's about making these repetitive lists, like the one I'm doing now, and allowing the point that you're making to unfold, to become clearer and clearer. That's Hebrew parallelism. And so we know, we know that David feeling like God is hiding his face from him is actually related to feeling like God has forgotten him. Those two things go together. But what does this mean for God to hide his face? Uh, Hiding your face is what you tend to do when you see the Mormons hop off their bikes and start strolling up to your door. That's what you do typically. They're coming up there, they're excited, they're smiling, but also sweating profusely from riding their bikes in the summer in Texas. And they're knock, knock, knock. And what are you doing? You're closing the windows, you're hiding behind your couch, you're locking the door. You don't even want to, you don't want to walk by your door because you're afraid that they'll see the light of the peephole in your door kind of flicker and they'll know someone's in there. And so you're like, oh, kids, the kids are like, who is it at the door? You're like, stop talking, stop talking. You're hiding your face. What, what, that, what those Mormon missionaries, what they want is for you to come talk to them. They need you to come talk to them about their weird polytheistic religion. But you're not giving that to them. That's what you're doing. You're hiding your face. They're saying, hey, 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 I need you to come talk to me. And what are you doing? You're hiding your face. You're refusing to give them what they need. And here, David's knocking on the door. He's saying, God, I need you. I I know you're in there. I saw you walk by the window when I came to the door, but God's just not answering. So he says, how long are you gonna hide from me in my time of need? Now, before we go any further, I have to, there's something really interesting that David's implying here that I need to say explicitly, okay? There's something that he's implying that I have to just say outright, which is, that God is sovereign over your suffering. That God is sovereign over your suffering. When David asks, how long are you gonna hide your face from me? What David's implying is that God could make his suffering go away. God could grant him a relief. The way that God would do that would be to stop hiding his face from him. It's not hard for God to get rid of suffering, to get rid of the grief that we go through, and yet, God is actively refusing to rescue David. This psalm teaches us that sometimes you'll find yourself in a season of suffering, crying out to God for relief, and yet relief will not come. God will withhold the relief that you are begging him for. And though he can take your suffering away, sometimes he doesn't. That's what we mean when we say that God is sovereign over his suffering. Now let me say what that doesn't mean, so before you get ahead of us, okay? That does not mean that God is responsible for evil. We're not saying that God is responsible for evil. Let's, let's just all repeat that, okay? Let's all repeat after me, God is not responsible for evil. What jubilation, how nice. God is good and all he does is good. And nothing he does is evil. We know that, we sang about that. You and I are responsible for evil. 
We're responsible for rejecting the goodness of God, for pursuing the shadow rather than the substance, but Psalm 119 says that God is good and he only does good. And yet, we see over and over again in the scriptures that one of the ways that God does good, that he executes goodness, is through the use of wicked men, fallen angels, a creation scarred by sin. We see that God uses evil and sickness and suffering and pain and grief for his good and perfect purposes. Let's look at a couple of examples. Isaiah 45, seven says, I, this is God speaking here, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being, which means health and happiness and, and, and goodness, and I create calamity, which means disaster, catastrophe, destruction. I am the Lord who does all these things. God says to Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 39, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. So God kills and God makes alive. God wounds and he heals. And just remember Joseph. Joseph, after his brothers, they threw him in a pit in the desert. They sold him into slavery. He was then falsely accused of rape, thrown into prison. His life was constantly threatened. And what does he say to his brothers who were responsible for getting him into the whole mess? What does he say after experiencing such suffering? Genesis 50, 20 says, as for you, brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God uses immense suffering and Joseph's brother's evil intent for good, for Joseph's good and for God's glory. But here's the greatest example, God's own son. Can we all agree that the death of Christ, in the death of Christ, God used immense suffering? You can't deny that. Listen to what Jesus says when he's being arrested in Gethsemane. He's betrayed by Judas, he knows that torture and the cross are what await him. And Peter hauls off and like cuts a dude's ear off. And Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, Jesus said to Peter in John 18, 11, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that who has given him? That the father has given him. Where did the suffering come from? Well, certainly Judas Certainly those who were arresting Jesus, certainly those who tore out his beard and whipped him and forced him to carry his cross and pierced him, but he doesn't mention any of those guys because he knows that ultimately God wounds and God heals. And it's by Christ's wounds that we are healed. What Judas meant for evil, God planned for good. So Jesus says, this cup is given to me by my father. This suffering is given to me by my father. Shall I not endure it? God is sovereign over suffering. By the way, if that's new to you, or you've never heard that, or you really hate that, we've got a few resources on our website. We've talked about this uh, a lot here at Parkway. We have a couple of theological equipping classes you can look up. We have some blogs that we've written about it. Or you can just send us an email, and we'd love to grab coffee with you, okay? But there tends to be this great tension in our minds when we try to understand God's goodness in the use of suffering, because we typically see suffering as just something evil that should be avoided, all right? We see suffering as this evil thing that should be avoided at all costs. But this is not the testimony of scripture. 
The scriptures are loud and clear. God is sovereign over suffering. And he works all things, including suffering, for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So whatever suffering you face, God is actually giving it to you for your greatest good and for his glory. And knowing this, David assumes that. Knowing this, David cries out to God, knowing that God is good and that he's faithful, all he does is good, knowing that God doesn't forget his people, knowing also that this cup of suffering that he's drinking in is from the Father. And so he pleads for deliverance from the one who has given him this cup. A pin drop, bing. We good? Everybody okay? This is fun. God used the suffering for our good. Thank you, God. Everything's great. We're so excited. Okay, what if I just ended my sermon there? <laughs> that would be awful. What a fun sermon. Okay, we're having fun. I feel like I need something lighthearted there, but I don't have anything. You know, I could do like a joke, your French horn joke. You know, I don't know. Zach likes pirates. Jared's a child. I don't know. Just fill it in with your favorite Parkway joke. Let's move on. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? David's saying, since you're nowhere to be found, God, at least I, at least I don't see you, I'm forced to go to my own soul for help, and that's brought me a whole lot of sorrow all day long. Let's define some terms. Take counsel in my soul. What on earth is that supposed to mean? Well, basically means to get inside your head and just think to yourself all day, just playing out different strategies, trying to figure out a solution to your problem. And so if you've ever tried to get a newborn baby to go to sleep, you have taken counsel in your soul. I guarantee it. Trying to think of what this sweet little gift from God, sweet precious gift from God wants in order to get them to stop screaming their little heads off, you tend to take counsel in your soul, trying to figure out some sort of solution, though often none come about, right? That was how it was with our first, my, my, my sweet son. Uh, he cried a lot. It was, it was a great wake-up call into parenting. And let me tell you all the things that made him cry. Everything. Constant. And so I'm freaking out because Kelsey, my wife, is like trying to sleep and she's just having to wake up throughout the night. And so there's one night I'm trying to like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna take care of this. I'm gonna get him to go sleep, though he's just screaming and screaming and screaming. And so I tried everything. You know, I'm like, oh, maybe I'll sing. I'm like a worship guy. I can sing. I'll sing to this guy. Oh, that's it. No, he's like screaming in my face. I don't like that. They're like, get out of my face. So I'm like, okay, well, we paid for this nice little swing that everyone said that we just had to have that would put him right to sleep. Here you go, sweet baby. And he just like rage, total rage. He's like, I hate that. I hate you, father. Everything you do, I hate. And so it just, I try so many solutions and, and nothing works, you know? I just, you, Turn on a sound machine, play some music on your phone, rock in the rocking chair. I'm just like, oh, okay, what else? Oh, maybe I'll just rock him like this, like real softly. Hey, buddy, it's going to be okay. And he's still screaming. Maybe I need to rock harder. You know, this isn't shaking the baby, right? You know, and you do whatever you can and, and nothing works. You take counsel on your soul and yet you can't come up with any solutions. And that's how David feels. I probably just passed out. My son's fine. He's fine. He's here today. He's doing great. He's enduring this suffering, David is. And he's just talking to himself all day, obsessively tr trying to figure out anything he can do to get out of the situation. But each and every day he comes up with nothing. And so David adds that he has sorrow in his heart 
all the day. If his heart is like a, like a cup, it's just constantly overflowing with sorrow. And no matter how much is poured out, there's always more. There's just always more sorrow. That's the season he's walking in. Now, up to this point, we all know that David's suffering, but we don't really have an idea of what sort of suffering he's experiencing. We don't know why he's suffering. We just know that he seems to be pretty sad, but we don't know why. But here the parallelism comes to its final line. It completes the psalmist's thought. It says, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? All of this sadness, all of his lamenting that he's crying out to God is the result of his enemy being exalted over him. God's using an enemy to bring David to this place of sorrow. And David even feels that this enemy, this wicked person, he seems to be receiving better treatment than David. David's looking and he's like, I am so cast so low and look at this, my enemy is exalted over me. And so he cries out again with another, how long? How long are you gonna hide your face from me and yet you're hiding your face from me and yet you're gonna exalt my enemy? Now a lot of people like to debate trying to figure out who David is talking about here but the psalm doesn't say. It could be Saul, you know, the king who chased him in the wilderness trying to kill him. Yeah, that's a, that's a likely, likely uh, person. It could be Absalom, uh, David's son. David's son, who also, by the way, chased David around in the wilderness trying to kill him. I've never had anyone who wanted to murder me in the desert, you know. If I did, it would be Zach Lee, you know. He'd be always mentioning, he's like, memento mori, you're gonna die someday. I'm like, chill, just go somewhere else, Zach. But we're not sure who this enemy is. Though personally, I, I do think it's Absalom, but the psalm doesn't say, because really that doesn't matter. That's not the point that this psalm is trying to show us. Here's what verse two shows us. We will experience suffering to the point of sorrow and our enemies will be exalted over us. That's all it's saying. And I hope I'm not the first to tell you this, that you're gonna experience some suffering. I hope that's not like a news flash. If it is, I'm so sorry I ruined your perfect 2020, right? Sometimes we'll experience sorrow and grief and pain because of persecution for our faith. You know, you may find your friends distancing themselves from you because of your faith. You may, your family might despise you, might even come between you and family members. You might uh, be slandered, you might get fired, you might be passed up for a, a promotion. You might experience this type of suffering. But more so, I'd say that we live in this, this tension between Christ, the true king, returning and establishing his kingdom and being under the rule of a guy that we put on the throne back in Eden, being under the rule of the devil. This, this world rejects the authority of Christ, but rather is living and, and currently under the leadership of Satan, this evil prince. We read this in 1 John several weeks ago, 1 John five nineteen. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies and the power of the evil one, meaning the enemy, Satan. But we who are in Christ have become citizens of a greater kingdom, right? A kingdom that is to come. We have renounced our citizenship in the kingdom of the devil that we were born into, and we have been made sons and daughters of the kingdom of God by grace. But this kingdom has not yet been consummated. We still wait for our faith to be made sight. And so we suffer in the meantime while what? 
our enemies exalted. Which means that we will certainly endure hardship and sorrow. 1 John 3.13 says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so as Christians, our experience now is that our enemy is exalted. And therefore, we suffer. Which prompts the question, so then what shall we do? What can we do about it? Well, here's where the psalmist begins to turn. Thus far, he's really just been lamenting over his circumstances, telling God how he's feeling. He feels forgotten. He feels like God's hiding from him. He feels trapped. He feels sorrowful. His enemies exalted over him. And so far, we've just kind of had to say, yep, we're all going to feel those things. But now David gets direct, simply lays out his request. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God, here in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. That's pretty straightforward. He's saying, here's my prayer, God. Ready? Do something. Do anything. Just do something. That's what he means here. He says, consider, which actually means, uh, in Hebrew, it means look at me long and hard. Just look at me. Take a long, hard look at me. You've been hiding from me. Now, please do the opposite and take a look at all that I'm going through. And he says, answer me. Now, do you think that David actually wants God to answer his questions that he's posed? You think that's what he's looking for, for like a timeline? How long is this gonna last? God's like, three years. You think that's what he actually wants? No, it's, it's like when I try to show Jeff Ashley a video on YouTube, you know, something objectively funny like an old Saturday Night Live clip or something that's really hilarious. And we're like only five seconds into the video and he's like, how long is this video? He doesn't want me any amount of time I tell him will be too long for Jeff. He just wants me to stop the video and leave his little, you know, office cave of introversion so he can get back to work, right? Likewise, David isn't looking for a timeline. He just wants God to do something to get him out of the suffering. He wants the suffering to stop, end, no more suffering. And so he adds, O Lord, my God. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Now those aren't just ancient worship song filler words like we have today, you know? When people write a worship song and it's like, you are God, you are Lord, you are Savior, I'm longing for, you know? And they just, just throw out all of these names of God and that's just kind of how they fill up time in the worship song. That's not what David's doing here. David's not just throwing out random God words so he can sell another album. David is saying, Yahweh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created the heavens and earth, who rescued Israel from Egypt, who has made a covenant with the people of Israel before all of the people of the earth, you, Lord, are my God. You are my God. I don't doubt that Exodus 34 is in David's mind, where God gives Moses a little insight into who exactly the God of Israel is. Exodus 34, six through seven. The Lord passed by Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, that means really thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
So David says, consider and answer me, you who are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I want that guy to answer me. Or listen to Exodus 23, verse 22. But if you carefully obey the Lord's voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So David's saying, yeah, yeah, remember that. Consider and answer me and be an enemy to my enemy and an adversary to my adversaries. Crush him. Call down fire like you did in Sodom. Do something. When David says, oh, Lord, my God, he's actually using the language of God's covenant to the people of Israel. He's holding fast to God's word because God has promised that he will take care of his people. But even more so, God made a specific covenant with David. This is what's given specifically to David. Listen to 1 Chronicles 17.10. The Lord speaking again, I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. It says God will ultimately subdue David's enemies, not exalt them, he'll subdue them. And he promises to build David a house, meaning that David's reign will be great and just spilling over into the reigns of his sons, which we know now God was speaking of the future reign of Jesus. And so David, in the midst of his suffering, what does he do? He believes God's word. He believes God's word. He stands on the promises of God and confidently asks God to do what he said that he would do, to be an enemy to his enemies, to subdue his enemies, and ultimately to be merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And that becomes really clear in this next little section of parallel phrases. These phrases all basically say the same thing. He says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. What he's saying here is, please crush my enemy, O Lord my God, because if you don't, I know my enemy is going to crush me. My enemy is going to kill me. And because of your word, I'm trusting that you won't allow any of that to happen. That's basically what he's saying, except a little more artsy. He says, light up my eyes, which is just a Hebrew idiom for for growing weary. When you close your eyes, what color do you see? How light is it? It's dark. You don't see anything. But when your eyes are really open and wide, how bright is your vision? Very bright. And so that's all he's saying. Make my eyes like this, not weary and downcast where I'm about to die. And now some commentators will argue here that David's probably really old and has some sort of sickness, and that's why he's afraid of death. That's why his eyes are weary. But considering that he speaks about an enemy being exalted over him, a specific enemy, and that he, he does the same thing. He uses the same language in other psalms when he's actually running from a specific person like Saul or Absalom. It's really doubtful that he's just speaking symbolically about death. No, he's exhausted from the present trial. Maybe he's been fleeing this enemy for a long time or maybe this enemy's stronger than him and he knows it. But David just feels like you would if you tried to take a long road trip after only getting 48 hours of sleep right? If you do that, you're not afraid of dying of sleep deprivation, right? No, but you are afraid that your sleep deprivation is going to kill you. Because the moment you fall asleep, you know something bad could happen. And that's David's fear, that his enemy will somehow take advantage of his weariness, and that that will be the death of him. 
That's what it means when his enemies say that they've prevailed over him and they rejoice because David is shaken. It means that they've overcome him and David is dead. To be shaken is really, imagine you built like a, like a house of cards on your kitchen table and then you shook your kitchen table. That's what his enemies are saying. That's what they want to happen. They want to rejoice because David has been shaken and all of his kingdom and all of his power and all of his might and glory has been brought low. And so David asked God to light up his eyes, give him strength, give him endurance, to be true to his covenanted word and to ultimately take the threat of his enemy away. Now here's what verses three and four teach us. When you, when we are in the midst of suffering, guess what you can do? You can ask God to take away your suffering. Isn't that crazy? You can ask God to take away your suffering. I think it's crazy that I have to say that. When you experience suffering, it's perfectly good and right to ask that God remove the suffering from you. But we have kind of this weird macho Christian mentality where we think that it's weak and unholy and immature to ask God for anything, much less to take away suffering. When we're going through a difficult time, we think, I'm just meant to endure it. This is what God wants from me. I need to faithfully endure. Yes, faithfully endure it. And guess what? You can ask him to remove the suffering from you. I remember uh, in college, so I have type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes, okay, which I like to call not my fault diabetes, right? I know, yeah. If that offends you, that's also not my fault. Uh, (laughs) But managing diabetes is really, really difficult. It's painful. You have to give a bunch of shots. You have to, like, prick your finger and stuff to get to bleed, to to learn if your shots are even working. It is difficult to manage, it's painful, and it's hard. And I've had diabetes well over the majority of my life. But I remember in college I had a friend ask me, do you ever pray that God would heal you? Do you ever pray that God would heal you? And I didn't even have to think about it. I said, of course not. Of course I wouldn't pray that. God has given me this thorn in my flesh to humble me so that I would depend on his grace. And yeah, that that could be true. I don't know that, but that, that certainly could be true. But that sounds pretty holy, right? That sounds really cool and holy and the suffering servant of the Lord. How mature. But yet, this sort of attitude actually stands in stark contrast to the Bible, to Psalm 13, and to God's word in general. 2 Corinthians 12, seven through nine, when Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh that God has given to humble him, listen to what he says. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And then what? Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Should we ask God to take away what he has given us to humble us? Sure, absolutely. That doesn't mean he will. But you can certainly pray that maybe he might humble you in a less difficult way. That's even what Jesus prayed before going to the cross. Jesus prayed this. Listen to Matthew 26, verse 38 through 39. Jesus said to his disciples, my soul is very sorrowful, kind of like David's, even to death, kind of like David's, that sounds familiar. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He asked to take it away. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then verse 42, he does it for a second time. Again, for a second time, he went away and he prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, you will, your will be done. He said, like, is there anyone, who can, anyone else who can drink it? There is, that's great, take it away. But ultimately, your will be done. And again, a third time, he says in verse 44, leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Three times, he prays. Take this away. We're promised suffering as Christians. As the world treated Christ, we should expect to be treated similarly. But this does not mean that it's somehow holy to refuse to go to our Father for relief. In fact, do you hear how anti-gospel that sort of thinking is? I don't need to go to the Father. I don't need anything from him. I can just endure, endure on my own. No, we should feel as confident as Christ did to take our concerns to God and even ask that he remove our pain. Some of y'all just need to hear that you can pray that God would take away his suffering. Doesn't mean he immediately will, but he also delights in giving relief to his children. And so David confidently goes to the Father and asks that he deliver him from suffering. And you can, and you should, too. Verse five, he says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Turn, what a turn. David was depressed. Now he's talking about love and rejoicing. What's going on here? He says, I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Notice you hear this language from the covenant again. He's bringing up this covenant language of steadfast love. That the Lord's merciful and gracious and abounding and steadfast love. He's saying that he is trusted that the Lord is indeed who he says he is. David is trusting that God is who he says he is and therefore he knows that he will rejoice in the salvation that God will surely provide. Now when David says salvation, he's not thinking about Jesus dying on a cross, right? He's, he's thinking about being saved from his current trouble. That's what's in David's mind. This enemy that's actually trying to kill him. So David's just saying, Lord, my God, because you're sovereign over suffering, because you've made a covenant with me and to be merciful and gracious to me and to subdue my enemies because of your steadfast love, I will then trust that you will save me because of your word. And I know, I'm confident that it won't be long before I am rejoicing that you've saved me. And then he adds, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This little phrase here is actually kind of hard to translate uh, because it's another uh, Hebrew idiom. But basically, David is expressing his confidence that he'll find himself on the other side of suffering, singing to God and thinking, wow, the grace that God has shown me is outrageous. That's what he's saying here. This phrase actually has to do with repayment, like paying someone for services. Like David's experiencing, if he mowed, he like mowed a lawn and then that person gave him $40 billion. He's like, whoa, this is quite the repayment. David's saying that he knows eventually God's gonna repay him for suffering what he has endured. But this repayment will be bountiful and in excess of what David is owed. And that's where he signs off. That's it. He just gets back to it. Probably back to being pursued by his enemy, feeling weary. And so if I had to summarize David's lament, here's how I'd do it. And I have this little slide that we'll put up here. 
David has an enemy who is exalted. David's enemy is exalted. And as a result, he is very sorrowful and he is enduring suffering. He's waiting for God to intervene on his behalf. And at the moment, he doesn't see it. But he's just trusting God's word. Trusting that God will intervene and that it is God who will bring about his salvation. That's what this whole psalm is about as David writes it. But that's not all this psalm is about. When we read the psalms, we have to read them with our New Testament glasses on and we have to recognize that the psalms are not just a collection of songs about a nation of Israel or King David, but rather they point to and forecast the coming of the kingdom of God made up of every tribe and every tongue and our king, King Jesus. And so we too have an enemy, an enemy who is currently exalted. Our enemy, the devil, is exalted over us and therefore we are sorrowful and we are suffering. We experience death and pain and slander and trials and so on. We're waiting for God to intervene. We're waiting for him to consummate the kingdom, to establish his kingdom. And there's just nothing we can do about it. Can we usher in the kingdom? No, only God. And so we trust his word. We trust in the Lord according to what he has promised, that one day he'll come and make all things new. That he'll wipe away every tear, that he'll cast our enemy into the fire and there will be no end to his torment. And finally, we trust that the Lord brings salvation. We rest in the truth that it is God alone who grants salvation. God alone who delivers us from the evil one. And so we place our hope in God and God alone. That's ultimately what Psalm 13 is all about. So I just wanna end with one quick encouragement, okay? And then we'll just not just hear about the word of God regarding our salvation, but we will taste it as well in bread and wine. So I'm not sure where you are this morning, but I wanna specifically encourage those who are going through a season of suffering because that's who the psalm is really written for, the sufferers. Whether that's suffering because of a medical diagnosis or a sickness, or maybe you've lost someone you love, you're in a difficult marriage, or you're dealing with a broken relationship, or you've lost your job, or you're anxious, maybe you're just tired, you're just exhausted like David. Or maybe you've done something really dumb and you're just kind of your own worst enemy and you've made a mess of things. I don't know. But if there is any encouragement to be found in Psalm 13, it's this, that the Lord hears the cries of the sufferers, that he's gracious and merciful and his love for his children is everlasting. And this is really important. His love is based on his word, not on your striving. His, word is, his love is based on what he has said, not on what you have done. So here's what you need to know. God's love for you is not based on how well you navigate your current suffering. It's not based on how good of a person you are or how much faith you have in him, but rather on how well Jesus navigated his suffering. How good of a person Jesus is and how perfect Jesus' faith is. The Lord is the one who brings you salvation, not you. And so in your suffering, even now, ask that God will save you. Yes, in an ultimate sense. And if you're in Christ, you don't have to keep asking that question. He's already released you from prison. We just haven't left the building yet. But also ask that God would bring you relief. 
It's strange that we don't bring these requests to God more often. I find myself constantly going through something difficult and I think I haven't even brought this to God. That wasn't even a thought. I'm just trying to figure it out on my own, which again is anti-gospel. He's a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children, so ask. And as you await salvation, do as Peter says. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11 says, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Not your enemy, but exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your enemy, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. What do I mean by faith? Firm in your faith that God will accomplish your salvation and that it doesn't depend on you. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for our eternal hope. God, I pray that you would be with us in suffering, that we would trust you in suffering. Lord, we, we need you. We confess that we need you. Apart from you, we have nothing. So I pray, Lord, that you would, that you would come. Lord Jesus, come. How long, O oh Lord, will our enemy be exalted over us? We pray, Lord, that your will would be done. Lord, that you would work in and through us, and that you would be glorified ultimately. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.